Art Problems Podcast, Episode 10. I'm your host, Hannah Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And I want to begin this podcast by welcoming the artist, William Pohida. As many of you know, William is the co-host of the shared podcast that I run uh, with William. Explain me. He is an artist that is who is very well known in his own right. And he is the community manager at Netwerk. And today we are going to take a look a little bit more, a little bit more deeply at social media and all of the changes that are happening. Because I wanted to have somebody on who I thought uh, might have a slightly more, I'm not exactly, like critical take on what's happening and how it affects artists. So welcome to the show, William. Thanks for having me, Patty. Nice to uh, talk to you in a different setting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So we had discussed uh, talking about all of the changes around social media. Where do you want to start with that? Well, Where is it affecting you? I think Twitter, you know, is the place to start, particularly around Elon Musk's uh, acquisition of the company and taking it private and just the... Um, daily kind of feed of news stories about the internal changes at the platform, which I should say, you know, at the outset were one of the reasons why I have stopped using my account on Twitter. I have not fully deactivated the account, but I have really just stopped using uh, Twitter. And it's, you know, a a huge change, uh, you know, in my life to sort of step away from something that, you know, I checked multiple times a day, used to get a lot of news. And I think over the last couple of years, you know, it's shifted away from being a place where I actually talked with folks to a place where we just kind of shared articles. Uh, There wasn't as much kind of dialogue on the platform. So that wasn't the big shift. The the shift was more of kind of stepping outside of what I think like Paul Verillo calls the information bomb. You know, this idea that you can sort of be informed about kind of everything or have that feeling of sort of knowing what's going on at any point. But increasingly, you know, it felt like you can know all the information, but you may not be able to do a whole lot about it. So, you know, I think it's an interesting sort of starting point to think about how many people have sort of stepped away from Twitter, how many people are looking for alternatives on sites like Mastodon, or returning to platforms like Tumblr, or hoping that there will be a kind of cross-platform uh, technology. I forget the name of it, but it's basically something like uh, an add-on to most existing social media platforms where you could converse with people across platforms. So we could chat together, say, on a Tumblr blog. Much oh, like I love that. Yeah. I didn't know about that. I wish, yeah. we, <laughs> I wish we had the name for that. <laughs> I want that. Google it and look it up and add to it. But it's it's a feature that, you know, the CEO of Twitter or uh, Tumblr actually said they're talking about integrating. And it's also something that was kind of in development at Twitter before Elon Musk took it over. They have a name for it. It's called Blue Sky. But basically, it's a cross-platform social media account. So wherever you'd log in, your followers would go with you. So you could chat with people, whether you're on YouTube or uh, LinkedIn. And so I don't know if that's still in development or if Musk has killed it. And actually, no, I should be clear (laughs) about that. He he doesn't own it anymore. Blue Sky was a sort of spinoff that was partially funded by Twitter. 
um, but its own independent company that I think Jack Dorsey's involved with. So I think if there's going to be a big change, it's going to be something like that, where you don't just have your followers kind of siloed on a platform like Instagram. You'll be able to just kind of take them with you. This is the big thing that I think is causing a lot of people anxiety. It certainly causes me a lot of anxiety because like, I I mean, I do have a lot of followers on Twitter, but I think for me, that's less of a concern than like, I, I did at one point consider Twitter a very good resource. And I feel like it's not as good a resource for news as it used to be. And that was the, it was really the main way that I kept informed and was able to uh, connect with people. And first the conversation went. But, you know, I do think that it's also about the kind of connections people make and want out of social media platforms and networks, you know. And, you know, I think stepping away from Twitter is sort of also like I find myself actually reading more content a little bit more deeply and like looking for things as opposed to just sort of what's coming in front of me. And also thinking about how to kind of, you know, see people and interact with them in different settings and in different places, whether it's sort of gallery openings or trying to get out a little bit more socially. I think the pandemic, you know, isolated a lot of people for so long that these social media platforms were like a sort of primary place to experience the world. And now we have a little bit more freedom to kind of move about and get out. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that I need to do more of, you know, in the absence of spending time on on Twitter, you know, as a place to get information or a place to kind of socialize on some level. So, you know, and another thing is it's not like a just a, a kind of purity test or something. You know, I don't like Elon Musk's politics. I don't like the fact that a democratic platform that was supposed to be like the global town hall is now owned by a billionaire. It seems like a sort of nightmare outcome of the optimism of like Occupy Wall Street to end up with, you know, a billionaire who's fairly crazy you know, just kind of imposing his own rules on on the platform. Uh, But I did feel like it was a great opportunity, again, to kind of like step away. And I do feel for you and other journalists in particular, who are so like, it's part of their job, you know, they can't just like kind of walk away from it. So you have people like Felix Salmon cross posting on Twitter and Mastodon and trying to kind of keep get at least one foot out of Twitter into other, you know, media. Yeah, I've seen that with a lot of journalists that the like in their Twitter bio now it says like they're Mastodon like yeah, handle as well. Such a big problem for artists. Twitter has always been the kind of like word people place, whereas Instagram has been the picture people place, you know, for artists making images. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the changes um, to kind of reels and the kind of TikTok of Instagram and how artists are responding to that. Because, you know, I'm still a kind of still image person on uh, Instagram, (laughs) not making reels or trying to tell, you know, the story of my studio every day. Well, I think reels are sort of an interesting phenomenon because, um, like, uh, on the one hand, uh, I think they are a very good storytelling device. And I say that caveating that with the fact that the best performing reels right now are like 12 seconds. (laughs) So like how much of a story can you really tell in 12 seconds? But I do think that they, they act like commercials, but I, 
One of the reasons that I think that people have not just like mass migrated to TikTok is because the reality is, is that artists need still images and the Instagram provides that. A lot of times you don't need a video to show a still object. And Mm -hmm. I think that Instagram recognized that that was a problem when they converted entirely to reels and stopped pushing still images. And now you see that the image carousels, those are carousels where there are multiple images that are posted at the same time are, are doing well because you can do similar things with that. And I think it serves artists and the problem I think with Instagram still is that like, I don't know, every week there's a new, there's just some new functionality. And I feel like Instagram doesn't really know who or what it is. You know, it's trying to be TikTok. It's trying to be YouTube shorts. It's trying to be all of these things. And like Instagram is, the best one is just being Instagram, which, you know, for whatever that means now, we don't even know, but still images are still great. (laughs) Most of the artists I know who participate in Instagram are making still images. I would say, you know, I certainly know new media, digital media artists, video artists, but mostly what I see are artists in their studios sort of performing around their still images or sculptures showing us the process of how they make the work, usually using a kind of time-lapse narrative device, or basically just kind of telling the world who they are. And I don't think that's a problem. I think it's interesting. It's, you know, sort of live action artist biography uh, coming to the foreground. But at the same time, I don't think, you know, Instagram has to kind of ask everyone to be um, TikTokers. You know, I think TikTok works great for the kind of content and stories that people are telling and sharing and performing and for huge numbers of people. And, you know, in the art world, it's nice to have a lot of people look at your work, but they're not necessarily buying it. For me, it's not a replacement for a gallery show or the experience of seeing work in person. And yeah, my, my main concern, and it's the kind of like dystopian projection maybe on my part, but like, If Instagram becomes an end-all, be-all for artists, like you share your process, you uh, show the work there, you sell the work there, then maybe that's where like an artist's entire career is just defined by the parameters of like uh, Instagram, you know, just in that kind of space. Honestly, I think that's a different kind of artist though, because like on Instagram and on TikTok, we have a couple types of artists, the types of artists that tend to do well on Instagram and on TikTok, specifically with reels, are artists that are selling directly to a customer, directly Mm -hmm. to a collector. Those are influencers. And I think those are different than artists that are who are working with galleries. If your target audience is not a third party, it's not like the the gallery is a middle middleman, let's say. If your audience is just a, a regular old person, then I think reels work pretty well. Uh, I think they stop working all that well when, when your audience is like a curator who doesn't need to be there in the first place. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they're not necessarily looking to connect in that way. They're not looking yeah. 
to be entertained or to learn about a process in that particular way. I will say that I have noticed that artists, like visual artists in, in general, who are sort of geared towards either commercial galleries or thwarting the system in some way, or like all of the people in the world that I think we kind of uh, uh, swim in, I have noticed that they've gotten better at reels and some of them now are not like at first I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but everything just seemed like garbage. Like, like nothing I ever wanted to see because it's all like, especially because Instagram too would it, like, I feel like I hit a real low point when there was this guy who was like shirtless pouring paint over a canvas. Well, yeah, you, you've, you've totally identified the genre of um, things that I wish Instagram would not show me in the reels. So yeah. there's an artist whose name I'm not going to mention never memorized it but his reels pop up quite regularly or maybe they're they're just videos but basically he's an artist who pours paint on canvas and then makes paintings with paper towel rolls just kind of smearing the paint around and it's typical of a kind of you know process-based novel thing that i i would not have been aware of it in the world without instagram showing this to me and they're very popular you know there's a lot of views that go into it and I just point that out because I think Instagram is that place where it is uh, an expanded field of the visual arts with artists whose work I wouldn't expect to ever see in a gallery. Yeah. Um, I would never want to hear them talk about the work. And seeing the process has, uh, you know, soured me a little bit on learning too much, you know, or seeing how some artworks are made. And the, the flip side of that is I was also thinking about the artists that I admire and whose work I'm really interested in. I don't see that many of them doing the kind of full real thing. You know, like I think Mark Thomas Gibson has a great way of using Instagram for his town crier series that he's putting sort of art and illustrations out as news and it can reach a broad audience and works so much better, you know, I think on Instagram. But, you know, I mean, other artists that I'm really interested in, I, I sometimes don't see them engaging at all, you know, on Instagram or social media. I mean, I think somebody like Emily Weiner, I think it does really good reels. And she falls in the category of people who do reels. Like, I think one of the reasons she makes really good reels is that she's not just showing us a process. Like, yes, we see how the, the work gets made, but we also see how her life shapes the art. We see how her influences, like specific uh, dance numbers and things like that, inform what the work looks like. So they're playful. They're smart. They draw on diverse types of footage. I will say that I think to some people, they look like they take a they would take a long time to produce. I don't know if that's the case because, I mean, I will say that some of mine look like they take a long time to produce and now they don't because I've done them so much. Like, so if, if you get used to the software, then it's not so onerous. It still sort of sucks though. Like, you, know, like you gotta do it every day. It's just like, you know, it's a pain in the ass. And I think one thing that, I don't know how things are going to play out, but I have a couple of predictions. One, I think we 
both a, a, agree on uh, or would ing- uh, agree on. For 2023, I think it's going to be the year of the comeback platform. So, like... Who do you have? What's on your radar? Because, you know, I, I reactivated my Tumblr account. You know, it had never gone away. It just sat dormant for a very long time. And it was a little weird to see that there were like a couple of people who just kept at it the whole time, you know, I'm yeah. like, oh, it went anywhere. Meanwhile, you know, I had like, I have like 17,000 followers or something on Tumblr. And I, I doubt, you know, a tiny percentage of those folks are real or even still active. And I could see yeah. a few people coming back to the platform in sort of real time as well, right around the Twitter, you know, sort of Musk takeover. But so Tumblr seems like it could be one of those poised to sort of make a comeback. What other platforms are you looking at or thinking about? Well, I mean, Mastodon, although I guess it's not really a comeback so much as a like replacement for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether this will really pierce the art world, but like there's a lot of talk and well, Two things, YouTube shorts um, Mm. and like YouTube in general, like that's a thing. I don't know where the art world really falls on that. I never see anybody on there. I think that podcasts, I don't know if you want to call them a comeback platform, but they've been around for a really long time and we're seeing a huge increase in podcasting. And I think part of that has to do with the hollowing out of the media industry. I spoke to a gallerist who was completely distraught by the fact that she couldn't get anybody to read her emails and she wanted advice from me for how to get press because she had, she had hired like a press company, but she was like, were they going to get to write about this stuff? (laughs) Like it's just so (laughs) the New York times. I mean, Yeah. 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 I mean, so So she's just like, how do I get the word out about my exhibitions? Because that's what she needs to do. And there's fewer ways to do that. Uh, And I actually recommended a podcast. And she was just sort of like, isn't that just something that artists listen to? No, no. (laughs) People love podcasts. They love true crime podcasts. You know, you can see. And, you know, I think there was maybe a little bit of a podcast uh, fatigue where, you know, people are like, everyone has a podcast. But that's also just a kind of process of normalization. Podcasts are sort of like, they feel like the new blogs. Um, yeah. But speaking of comeback platforms, you know, I kind of kicked the dust off my my blog, moved it back to the front of my website homepage, which uh, I just discovered my website is currently suspended because there's some restored files on the server or something. So I have to uh. resolve this with my daddy. But, you know, the idea that like a blog is um, something that could make a comeback, I think is um, possible. You know, I know more than a few people like Anil Dash has been one of the sort of bigger uh, social media presences to move over to Mastodon. But he spent like just weeks describing how he was sort of like getting his blog back up and running and starting to repost. And you know, I mean, for, for someone like Greg Allen, who is a very active Twitter user, has never let his sort of blog practice lapse and yeah. is, you know, regularly publishing on it. And I think that's something that I've been thinking about, not just, you know, as a migration away from like Twitter, but also just a kind of return to longer format writing and writing not in real time for like some idea of an audience, but like yeah. 
letting, you know, a piece develop over some time, writing and then publishing and not worrying, not even thinking about, is this going to have some sort of immediate reaction or am I going to have to respond to comments to this? And, you know, some of that is just for my own benefit and my own thinking about things because it has become sort of truncated into these little bite-sized, you know, responses and, uh, in some cases, just very kind of reactionary thinking to what people are presenting, you know, so I mean, post respond to it. And that's just the cycle. I mean, I do think that there is potentially a new renaissance coming in media. Like, mm. I think it was October, pretty much every other day I heard, I was like, this was before I really had abandoned Twitter. I, I still go back to Twitter, but like, I'm more or less off it but i would go back and parag would be tweeting about how many visitors he had to the site and how hyperallergic was had more traffic than they'd ever had in their like how many years of running so they're certainly doing really really well and i think that's good to see because social media has hollowed out the media industry in a way that I think is unhealthy. It become, it has become very difficult to get uh, reliable, reliable news and, I don't know, have deeper conversations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think another trend within social media is, and we see this on TikTok quite a bit, but, like, just, like, messy bullshit like you just go on it doesn't matter what like what you do you're just like doing whatever and if it's like weird and somewhat entertaining people like it and Mm -hmm. that's the twitter platform and the twitter culture but i think it's coming out of an important response to an exhaustion of overly curated material where people and too much content like right. for a lot of these platforms that the demand has been that you have to produce all the time. And mm. I think the people who make it are exhausted. And I think the people who consume it are exhausted. And so another prediction that I have, and I think it's tied to like, yes, like blogs could conceivably be one of those comeback platforms. And in fact, we use it on workshop more than I would have thought a year ago is that we're going to see longer form content just in general. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. And I think part of it is in relation to the kind of saturation of social media where you have a lot of people that can produce reels and contents and people can like it, but there's this other desire, I think, that artists have for someone else to come in and give the work consideration, you know, yes. in the form of a review. And we constantly hear from people, particularly outside of New York City and, say, L.A., there is, like, zero regional arts coverage, you know, where yes. something like Glass Tire stands out like a beacon, you know, in, in Texas, for actually providing some coverage. And, you know, with the consolidation of like art form into the Art in America, Art News Empire, I, it's at Penske Media or something. I don't even know the name of yeah, it. Yeah, it's it Penske. Just... I, I mean, I don't know that I consider that a like a sign of strength, though. I mean, no, like... no, no. I don't think it's a sign of strength. I mean, 
more so it's just a consolidation of the kind of remaining kind of legacy media art platforms, right? Or publications. And what I would love to see, and, you know, I'm discussing this with some friends. It's a little bit cynical, but there's this idea that we would want to start a publication called The Negative Review that would just be dedicated to bad art reviews. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just a kind of lack of them. And I don't think of all bad art reviews as just being takedowns of work, but just a kind of critical platform that would wear that you know, sort of uh, put that forward. So I'm sure it may not include just negative reviews, but um, it it was such a kind of fun and strange idea, but it was more about a desire to get back to kind of longer form writing and come up with some reason to do it, you know, and like have a reason for something to exist. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the continuing problems that we're going to see is people actually getting paid uh, to mm. do this stuff. It does seem like models like Substack uh, can really provide people with a, a good living. I don't know the degree to which like a, you know, a negative review would necessarily no. <laughs> play out there. But for those of you who don't know what Substack is, it's basically a newsletter subscription service where if you like the writing of a particular person, you can subscribe to their newsletter. And I think Jerry Saltz was it last year was offered $250,000 to start his own Substack, which he said he turned down because he was really committed to New York magazine, which I sort of took as like, like it just made me wonder whether he was negotiating with New York magazine behind the scenes. Cause that's what I would. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need a raise. Okay. Yeah, no shit, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see more art writing in general, longer form art writing, particularly in response to the amount of content that I see on Instagram, which is when it's produced by artists is going to be necessarily self-promotional and put the most positive and best spin on work. But it doesn't necessarily invite a kind of critical um, discourse, you know, about what the work means or uh, an independent or third, at least, a you know, kind of third perspective on what the work is. So that I would love to see, you know, I'd love to see more of that. So I do think in terms of social media, you know, accounts like Instagram, that when an artist, you know, I think you mentioned Emily, is it Weiner or Weiner? W-E-I-N-E-R. So I don't know. Emily Weiner. You know, it sounds like her Instagram practice illuminates more than just the process. And it's really about other things that are informing the work, which I think is sort of wonderful. And I would love to see that as a (laughs) model, you know, that gets expanded upon in in, um, social media, because you can only talk about yourself for so long, you know, as an artist, and it's nice to have other people talk about your work. So if, if we do see a return to either blogs, or even traditional print, art publications, uh, it would be great. And yeah, I hear you on the the difficulty of actually making it kind of sustainable. And I, I think there is the weird, you know, thing that if I could encourage more artists to write, say, infrequently about work, not to try to make it a, a kind of money making model, but literally just like writing about a couple of shows a year, there are so many of us, we would have a flood of like art reviews and writing, you know, if artists were doing this sort of occasionally and not trying to build a kind of career out of it. 
I mean, I think the challenge with that, I mean, isn't it that, that as artists, you also don't want to burn bridges with people? I Not everyone has to, you know, be proposing reviews for the negative review, but... Um, <laughs> well, but I guess what I'm saying, were, though, is, like, we want, like, well-rounded discussions, right? Which would yeah. have to include negativity at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least critical discussions. And artists, you know particularly artists who are engaged in a particular kind of practice or field, when they look at and write about others that are dealing with similar concerns, you know, you get a kind of very informed perspective. And if there's an expectation that this is also a review of like, you know, a a peer review, right, to some degree, I think it could be really helpful and give artists another way to kind of think about their own work and thinking about what their concerns are through the lens of, of another artist's kind of experience and presentation. And, you know, it would be great, of course, if artists could get paid for that. But, um, you know, I think even like someone like Sharon Butler's Two Coats of Paint, you know, she's been able to kind of keep that blog running. And it's one of the kind of artist-centered blogs that focuses on the kind of painting she's interested in. And she, you know, certainly invites other writers to come in and broaden the kind of perspective of it. But, you know, that one hasn't gone away. Yeah. Have you heard of a peer review? Mm-mm. That one is, it a is arts journal. Well, it's run by artists. It's it's brand new. I don't think they've had their first publication yet. They had their first call for entries. Cat Chamberlain is part yeah, of it, but I think that. it's a collective. Great. Uh, so I don't know all of the names of the involved. So My cool. apologies to the artists yeah. who I have omitted. Yeah, that's but, kind of fantastic. But yeah, so I do think that there there may be something in the air with this mm-hmm. where people are feeling this sort of vacuum of, you know, critical feedback and discourse and starting their own things, which I think is, you know, when I think about the people that we bring in to network, like the bonus guests, I think that no, one of the number one things that we hear from them, the, the advice that is given is like, start your own thing. like. Mm-hmm. Do your own thing. And when I asked you when I was just starting the membership, I I asked you what you felt like artists needed to do for opportunities. And that was your first answer too. like the thing that is missing that you want to see, make it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and that for me, it, it was more than just, you know, kind of creating an exhibition opportunity. The exhibition opportunities came through writing. And so, you know, going to a gallery as a writer and looking at other people's artwork eventually led around to, you know, show opportunities for me as an artist, but that's not where it, it, you know, began, you know. So I I see a lot of value in that, you know, sort of initial step of starting something, doing something, you know, that may even not be directly related to your own work, but, you know, is sort of helping create a sense of community or, you know, that's one of the things that I love about art writing is that, you know, you have, you're, you're dealing with somebody else's art problems <laughs> you get to sort of talk about them. and people will send you emails thanking you years later for art reviews, you know, that they still appreciate. And even the, uh, when I, when I wrote is like Kine Pepper for free Williamsburg, he is on a lot of CVs, you know, with negative reviews. <laughs> People yeah. are like, it's press. You know, this put my work out in front of an audience, got people talking about it, and they could make up their own mind if it was so good or so bad. I think we actually had one artist who had mentioned uh, a negative review on Art of City in her 
uh, Guggenheim application um, that we actually recommended she take out because, mm -hmm. you know, this person had wanted to have like a more well-rounded picture. Like, look, you know, I have, I don't want to brag too much. I'm like the whole point. <laughs> Again, you're making your case for yourself. I wouldn't necessarily want to include those in it. You know, I think for a lot of artists, the, the kind of starting point and the general condition is not a lot of writing or press about work. So anything, you know, anything, sort of any yeah. recognition that you exist uh, can be very helpful in the early going, at least. Well, especially, I mean, it's just a line on a CV, right? So mm -hmm. I think the other thing, to recognize is that even though like we spent a lot of time putting together the CVs, so they look right. And, you know, they show us in the most positive light, like most people aren't like checking every single article to see what's in it. You no, know? And when you think about it, if you think about what reviews people share, unfortunately, they tend to either be like ridiculous ones where somebody says something horrific and terrible or, you know, the kind of like really engaging negative reviews. I mean, I'll never forget your friend, the writer's review of the Amy Feldman show. For oh, RM Bond. Yeah, yeah, that was one that people shared, whether or not they completely agreed with his conclusions. It was just mm -hmm. such like a kind of honest piece of writing and just wrestling with his own sort of opinion about work that he did not clearly like. But um, it, it actually got you know, shared, people send that around to others, you know, because they're so sort of rare <laughs> I know. In, in, in a, in a field where, you know, we know this, uh, working with network is helping people craft the best and most positive version of their art and their experience. And this applies for galleries and their press releases. It's so one directional that it is when you encounter somebody who's kind of swimming against that stream and doing it thoughtfully and in an interesting way, it seems like a completely refreshing, you know, just to kind of experience something that is so different from the norm of a kind of breathless, this is great. <laughs> you know, and we're like, I don't know. I, I, we went to some of the art fairs this year and, you know, there's not, not all of it is so great. You know, there's a lot of uh, junk out there. I think that's a, a constant. I mean, I don't even know what to make of this. But the other thing that I I sent this to you over Slack or something, uh, that that terrible installation with uh, it was like a sponsored yeah, project. Fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like we had reviewed that. I don't know if review is the right word, but we had dis we discussed it on uh, the one of the Explain Me podcast episodes that we had done because it was just so I don't even. It was terrible, and for anyone listening who did not hear this or go to Freeze, this was Yeppie Hines' piece in the VIP lounge of Freeze on the fifth floor, where there was a champagne booth. Um, yeah, was it like could, Rune or something? Yeah, some kind of I don't yeah, know. champagne. Yeah. And you could go around the back and reach into a black hole and receive a piece of chalk where you were encouraged to write down your feelings on kind of multicolor or well, there were just these kind of colorful blocks with basically chalkboard paint on them. And you could draw and write. And so there were like hearts and question marks squiggled on the benches that people then sat like, on and drank their champagne. 
quote unquote art, as you're describing this, it reminds me of that, like, even if this were an exercise for children, it would be bad because there's yeah. not enough parameters for no. anything interesting to come out of it. Right. So it's like, it's terrible in every way. And then, you know, we saw like, like Jerry Gagosian had some sort of very um, promotional, like celebratory tweet in front of, or an Instagram post, right. In front of mm-hmm. the piece installed in Miami on the beach. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, behind be- like, it's just mind boggling to me that like, not only <laughs> did this installation happen once, but somehow somebody thought it was effective enough to do it twice and then paid an influencer to spread this nonsense. Like, yeah, like I have to imagine Jerry Gagosian took a sizable chunk of money to, to write that because I don't think any, any sane, thoughtful person would, would have posted that, you know? I mean, maybe if she's no. best friends with Yeppi Hine and you wanted to like help a buddy out, sure. But that was not no. that was like clearly, you know, like bought and paid for. Yeah. You know, the, the Yeppi Hines piece would only make sense if it were satirical and it was like a comment that, you know, the very, very wealthy are sort of careless and like children and irresponsible or something. I mean, yeah. that may, makes sense. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Square. No, I have not. You, you need to watch that and you can follow it up immediately with the director's next film called Triangle of Sadness about very wealthy people on a yacht trip that goes wrong. And it's like social media influencers. It's some of the things that we've been discussing uh, playing out in a very sort of crazy uh, scenario. And it's really great social satire, but the square is set in like a Dutch art museum dealing with a piece that, you know, could be behind esque in its nature, but it's sort of the the device on which the rest of the plot swirls and is maybe the best depiction of the art world that I've seen on film so far. So if you haven't seen it yet, really, yeah. Oh, I've I've got to check that out. That'll be something that uh, I will do over the holidays, which are coming up very very soon. And when this is published, we will be in the thick of them. So anyway, William, I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been really nice to reconnect with you in this format, and we will definitely do it again. Thank you so much. All right, Patty, thanks for having me, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.